So tonight's New Testament reading is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, which is on page 2 of the bulletin, or of course on the screens. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. My name is Glenn Hoberg. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown. And we are in that season where the pastors in our network rotate to our three churches. And last week, Pastor Russ preached. And as he did, he had mentioned that their church had been planted and established for, I thought he said, did he say seven years? Seven years? Well, then Russ has been with us three plus that. And I thought, man, Russ has been with us 10 years. And then I thought, Duke has been with us for 15 years. Is that not right? And I just, I had this overwhelming thanksgiving uh, that God has brought us these wonderfully gifted pastors, and I will add friends, and he has kept them here. And we have had the fruit of that ministry. That's not something that we would take for granted. Uh, And so it's not just uh, the deep ministry they bring to us, but the long ministry. And so we're very grateful and grateful for Paula being here. Uh, When Duke and Paula got married, she basically had, I think, all of like 24 hours, uh, no, more than that, before she was uh, sitting in a pew and uh, about a year before they planted a church. So it really has been great to see uh, her commitment. You know, I could keep going on, (laughs) but I think it'd be better to hear Duke preach. So come on up. I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going to let you go first. God, I am so grateful uh, for Duke and Paula and their children. We thank you for Meridian Hill and the light it is. I thank you what uh, I and the other pastors and elders have learned from Duke and what this congregation has learned. And I pray now that you would fill him with the joy of his salvation. Hmm. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. If you were reading between the lines what Glenn meant and didn't say, we all getting old, folks. <laughs> Starting with him, of course, right? It's a joy to be here this evening, and thank you for having me. And uh, I bring you greetings from your siblings at Grace Meridian Hill, your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
but it's always a blessing to be in long-term partnership, familyship together. A joy to be here. Howard Thurman, a great preacher and civil rights leader, once made the observation that, curiously, only a few Negro spirituals seem to focus on the birth of Christ. And as he reflected on why this might be so, he suggested that that might be so in part because the original Advent story, as we find it in the Bible, clearly reminds us that Jesus was born into lowliness. His parents were of poor and of humble origins. And so, many slave masters would have carefully edited out that part of the story. For their own twisted purposes, it wasn't smart for them to teach that the king of kings was poor. It wasn't safe to teach the enslaved that Jesus himself was dispossessed of power, just like they. Because then they might conclude that the savior of the world might just be on their side. So Thurman wonders aloud, what limitless spiritual and emotional release would have been available to the slave if his introduction to Jesus had been on the basis of his role as the hope of the disinherited and the captive? In the teaching of the Christian religion to the slave, this aspect of the career of Jesus was carefully overlooked and continues to be even now. I think Thurman provokes an important question for us to consider this evening. Do our retellings of the first advent of Christ, the stories that we share, the songs that we sing, do our retellings of that story communicate the subversive significance of the birth of the one who was born poor. Or to put it another way, is the Christmas story that we rehearse year after year, again and again, told in such a way that would be heard as good news to the poor and downtrodden. Because don't you know, the good news of Christ's arrival at least the one that we find in the pages of Scripture, that good news was delivered not to strong people in high places, but to weak people in low places. Places of poverty and of humiliation. Places of barrenness and in the margins and corners of society. See, Advent is the story of A Savior who came, as the hymn says, stooping so low to raise heavenward the lowly, the weak, and the sinful. That's what we find in the pages of today's story. The story of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. And here we're reminded that in the story of Christ's first arrival, Grace came to someone who was confused and devastated. 
Someone who came from a far from perfect family. Someone who was a a sinner in need of a savior. And if those things are true, then that just might mean that Advent is for me. And maybe for you. See, Advent is for the confused. See, we think Advent and Christmas itself is for people who've got it all figured out. We tend to think Christmas is for people who look put together. People who seem to have it all together. Some of us even aspire to be that kind of a person, especially this time of year. But clearly, that's not how this story actually started out. How did verse 18 begin, after all? This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, and Joseph posted a sonogram image on their Instagram account with the caption, guess we better get used to sleepless nights. Big eyes emoji, wink emoji, brown baby emoji. No, 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 that's not how it went, is it? This, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Scandal. You see, Mary was pledged or betrothed, the older word, to be married to Joseph, which was sort of like being engaged, except in those days, betrothal was actually legally binding. That's why Joseph was called Mary's husband in verse 19, and also where we find the language of divorce. So they weren't just engaged, they were very, very, very engaged. One day, Mary, in the midst of this super engagement, was found to be pregnant. Now, we don't know how Joseph found out. Maybe it was the baby bump, obvious for all to see. Or maybe Mary herself told him. You can't imagine that conversation going very well, can you? No, 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 no. God got me pregnant. (laughs) Can't imagine it. See, we are told that this happened by a miracle through the Holy Spirit. But Joseph doesn't know that, does he? Not initially, at least. All he knows is his fiancée is pregnant, and he's not the daddy. Just take a second to imagine what he might have been feeling, the devastation, the feelings of betrayal, the sense of loss, even the anger towards Mary, towards the mystery dude, the feeling of being deceived, even the shame or embarrassment. I, I, I thought I knew her. I thought we were close. Of course, they also lived in a a small town, and so for sure everyone knows by now, everyone knows by now the rumors mill now being lit aflame. And of course, being from a small town, as some of you might also be, their families were surely intertwined. That's what betrothal entailed, but that's also culturally what it would have been like. Marriage for them wasn't just a romance between two individuals, it was a union of Two families. And so now they've got to get mom and dad involved. I mean, before, maybe their dads used to play poker together. 
Maybe their siblings used to ride their bikes in the street together. And now things just got awkward, even painful. See, Joseph's almost wife was unfaithful. What else could he conclude? So Joseph decides to divorce her. He's humiliated. He's confused. His whole world is crumbling around him. And maybe that's how you're feeling today. Maybe it's one of those days. Maybe it's been one of those years. Maybe even decades. And you're saying to yourself, what am I supposed to do next? Maybe like Joseph, you have a big decision in front of you. A painful decision, maybe, and you don't know which way to go. You have no idea, maybe, what God is doing in your life. Maybe you're asking, maybe even with a a clenched fist, why is this happening to me? Maybe you've lost a job, maybe a relationship. Maybe you've recently lost someone that you love. Maybe you're battling an illness, and the doctors have no idea what it is. Maybe it's chronic illness, and the pain just won't go away. Or maybe it has, but every day you live with the fear that it just might come back. And you're not sure what that might mean. You're facing disappointment, perhaps, maybe in someone, maybe in something. Or like Joseph, maybe today you're feeling just humiliated, naked before the world. Or you're nursing that privately and quietly in your heart. Maybe today life feels like a fog. And then we see verse 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see, somehow, miraculously, God had conceived in Mary, rather, Mary had conceived by God, the Holy Spirit, a child. And not only did God explain all of this to Joseph, But verse 24 tells us something that's almost just as miraculous. When Joseph woke up, he actually did what God, through the angel, told him to do. He took Mary home as his wife. And maybe even more so, he then took the boy and named him, which was an act culturally that symbolized his full acceptance of Jesus as his own son. I mean, check this out. For all his confusion, for all his disappointment, his fear, his anger, his humiliation, his heartache, his fog, Joseph believed God. Joseph trusted God even more than he trusted himself. Even more than he trusted his own read on the situation, his own analysis, his feelings about the matter. We're so good at leaning upon those other things. But somehow, by God's grace, Joseph came to a point of believing God's explanation even more than his own, and even more than his own chattering community's explanations. What about us? 
Can we trust God, follow God, even beyond what our eyes can see? Beyond what our minds can explain, beyond what our hearts can feel? Joseph believed God's promise. By God's grace, we can too. Maybe you say, well, that ain't fair. I don't got that angel telling me the truth. A little bit of that intel actually might have helped. But listen, it's true. God gives us a blueprint to give us guidance as to what he's doing in our lives. A a blueprint meaning he tells us the main things, the foundations of his character. He tells us the, the basic plans and purposes of, of how he intends to do good to us, to bring about glory and truth in our lives by the power of his grace. He doesn't tell us the details of where to put the furniture and how to paint the walls, but he does make sure that we know what it is that is, in fact, holding up the structure so that we know what's causing the roof, keeping it from caving in. God gives us himself, he gives us his character, but he gives us even more than that. He gives us his promise to be for you in Jesus, Emmanuel. Emmanuel in the fog, Emmanuel in the darkness, Emmanuel in the confusion. Remember hearing that nickname there in the reading? Verse 22, all this took place To fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. You see, because this God doesn't just stand far off, leaving us to squirm on our own, leaving us in our confusion. This God comes near. And he came near, coming from heaven to earth to rescue you and me because his name is Emmanuel. His name is God with us. And he came as a human being and he came and took upon himself every aspect of life as a human being. And that even includes our sorrows and our our sufferings. And he did this because he wanted to feel in his own flesh and in his heart these things that he would experience that he might be able to minister to us, to you and me in the midst of our own struggles and sorrows and sufferings. He did this because his name is God with us. And he died for our sins, becoming a a human being that we might stand that he might stand in our place 33 years later from this point in the story, bearing the wrath of God as our true representative before the court of heaven, taking the judgment that every single one of us deserve for our sins so that we might be forgiven, that we might be freed, that we might know that we are loved by God so that you And I might have confidence in days like this, even dark days, to know that whatever it is that God might be doing in your life, in the confusion, in the darkness, in the fog, one thing you can be sure of 
is that he loves you and that he's with you because his name, his very name is God with us. Emmanuel for the broken, pouring out his Holy Spirit upon you because he's a God who doesn't just keep a distance, sort of commuting to and fro into our lives and out of it. He even lives in you, dwelling in your life like a house, loving you from within. And from there, he promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you because his name is Emmanuel. His name is God with us. And so we can know today, no matter how confusing, how painful, bewildering, humiliating, no matter how many unanswered questions you've got on your mind and your heart, you can know today and take heart to know that God has not abandoned you, brother or sister. God has not abandoned you because Advent grace is for you, the confused. But secondly, Advent grace is also for broken families. Broken families. You might have been aware of this backlash and mockery subjected upon the latest commercial designed by the company Peloton, maker of high-end exercise equipment, A little bit of an online controversy, which isn't ever really a real thing, just an online thing. A commercial where a man surprises his wife with a Peloton stationary bike as a Christmas gift, apparently. And of course, the onlookers of this commercial are saying to themselves and saying to one another in criticism, why why does he assume she needs a, a stationary bike? What's going on here? You have shots of her looking nervous and and scared, and by the end of the commercial, 30 seconds later, she confesses, I didn't realize how much this would change me. The husband looking very self-assured and (laughs) grateful for his wisdom, perhaps. People didn't like this commercial very much, mocking everything from their relationship and the subtext of it and, and, and all the rest, and you might have some opinions about it. Maybe it's a big deal, maybe it's no big deal. Uh, But as I was watching sort of this fury going on, it was interesting to observe how many opinions people seem to have with great certainty about the dynamic of the marriage of this fictional couple. Uh, Lots of insight into what was really going on in their marriage and lots of understanding, clear understanding about what the facial expressions that you could see meant and the, what it reflected about the motives of their heart and their long history and the struggles she must be enduring and a fictional family. And I wonder the, the reason why we do that. Well, there's a lot of reasons why I think we do that. But one of the reasons why I think we're so confident about that is because when we look upon other people's dynamics even when they're made up, fake people. I I think we know enough from our own experience uh, to be able to peer into their lives and and know, well, people have a lot of junk in their families and in their marriages. How do I know? Because I do. Because we do. You see, you start digging around into our family stories, into our actual personal relationships. You start digging around in mine or yours, 
You never know what kind of junk you might find. And not just in the past, right? Even in the present. And sometimes you don't even need to dig all that deep. You find yourself in a whole lot of mess, the broken families that we tend to come from. And for some of us, it's one of the reasons why the Christmas time can be so hard. Maybe one of the reasons why you yourself are uneasy about this holiday season is you you know what's coming up or who's coming to town or what that family gathering that you're headed towards might actually be like, you know, that, that one difficult person. Or maybe you're suspicious that someone else sees you as that difficult person or that unreconciled relationship or that topic that just seems to make everything grind to a halt or bring out the worst of your dysfunctions. Maybe you're looking at those TV images or commercials online, or maybe it's the movies. You know, the perfect Christmas family around the perfect Christmas tree in their perfect Christmas sweaters with their perfect Christmas smiles. And maybe you're saying, man, that ain't my family. That's not my family. And guess what? That wasn't Jesus' family either. Because you know what we find in the first half of this chapter is this. When Matthew begins to tell the story of the Savior of the world, he begins chapter 1, even verse 1, the story of Christ's birth with a genealogy, a family tree. And so verse 1 not printed in your bulletin, reads like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. And then it goes on to list all those hard-to-pronounce names again and again until we get to verse 16, which says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So what's going on here? Why include that family tree business in there? Well, if you were to go back and read the Old Testament and trace down all of these names, you would see that the point is that God promised Abraham and King David a long time ago that he would send one of their descendants as the Messiah to rescue the world from all of its sin and sadness. And so the point of this genealogy is to establish that Joseph is indeed from the family line of Abraham and King David, which would mean that through Joseph, his adoptive father, Jesus really is the great, 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 great grandson of King David. In other words, he was and is the promised Messiah from the family of David. But what you got to understand, though, is that if he's from that family then what that means is that the Savior of the world is from a family with a past. Because Abraham was a man of faith, but he was also a coward, under pressured, almost, almost selling out his wife to a foreign king. Jacob was a scoundrel and a manipulator. Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar seduced her own father-in-law to sleep with her. King David had a codependent relationship with his son Absalom. And of course, he also famously was an adulterer, murderer, sexual abuser. 
Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Manasseh, all of them messed up kings who abused their power and their people. Every single one of them part of Jesus's family. And now facing the possibility of having to leave Mary in amidst this scandal, here's Joseph, also part of this family tree, looking at even more family pain. I wonder if you know that the Bible describes this family, Joseph's family, Jesus's family, with the image of a chopped down tree. A picture of a dead tree stump. I mean, how is that for a family tree? And maybe some of you are saying, well, that might as well be my family logo too. But friends, tonight I want to tell you, God wants to give you a new family logo. See, because the picture that we find in the prophets is a promise that God's going to give new life to that dead tree stone. And that from it is going to arise a fresh shoot, a new branch, new life that will once again bear fruit. That's the way the prophets talked about the coming Messiah. That he's going to come from a, a spiritually dead family, a broken family, a family just like the ones that we've got. So that if you embrace Jesus' story and his family story becomes your family story, then it gives us so much hope, friends. Do you see it? Because the message then is this. If God can produce the Messiah of the world through that family, then you better believe he can work in your family. If God can bring about the redemption and salvation of the world through those broken relationships, through that dysfunction, then he can indeed work redemption and good news and even life in and through your broken relationships. And I need that hope for my family. Maybe you need hope for yours as well. And of course, that doesn't mean that God always works everything out happily ever after. In fact, one of the ways that God actually redeems our family brokenness sometimes is by giving us a new spiritual family. It's what God calls the church. A place where you've been given new spiritual siblings or even new parents or where you can serve in that role. I mean, don't you know, if, if you are holding a baby or, or teaching a child in this church, sometimes, even for just a few minutes, you're not just fulfilling an obligation as a member. You may be serving as an additional spiritual parent to that child that they may not have at home. Or if you offer just the simplest of gentle advice or support to someone, you might actually be serving the role of a spiritual parent or a sibling that that person doesn't have and desperately wants or needs. Or maybe you need it. Maybe it's why you're here. 
You're aware of this promise of a family. You've been eating it up, maybe, taking it in. Because every single one of us, we need to take into our hearts this confidence and conviction that no family's sin, no family's dysfunction can keep God from working out his perfect promises and purposes for you. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the God of Advent. And maybe already you're shaking your head and you're saying, you just don't know my family. You, you, you just don't know the impossible kind of stuff that we deal with in my home, in my extended family. For any, any kind of good to come out of it, that, that, that would take a miracle. You mean like a virgin birth? God can do that. God has done that. Advent is for broken families. But finally, Advent is for sinners. Advent is for sinners. And you say, well, hold on a second. Isn't, isn't God making a list and checking it twice? Going to find out who's naughty and nice? No, no, that's not God. That's, that's Santa Claus. There's a difference. You might think that Christmas is for the good kids only. Not in the Bible. God's arrival in Christ is for the bad kids too. Ones like me. See, I wonder if you know that the name Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua, which in Hebrew means the Lord saves. Which is why in verse 21, the angel says to Joseph about this baby that's about to be born, you're to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because here's what the name means. He will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. And for the sake of time, just to boil it down to, uh, for us, to, to understand that this is who, in fact, Jesus comes for. Sinners like you and me, the heart of sin being that of selfishness and self-centeredness. I mean, I really believe that the holiday season, the next couple of weeks, and maybe already, is one of the hardest times for us to get our eyes off of ourselves and our hearts off of ourselves. It's difficult for us to always in general live generously and selflessly, but there's so little in our culture in the Christmas time that's ever going to support you and support our endeavors to be anything but concerned about ourselves. Recently, one of my kids came up to me I won't say which one, but they announced, Daddy, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. Why, I asked, and they explained, because I like getting presents. And then, almost as if to catch themselves, quickly added, and because Jesus is the best present. (laughs) Of course, that that first part was my child's heart speaking. The, The second part was Daddy speaking, I think. Of course, I'm not saying that a child's natural love and joy in receiving presents is only sinful. A child will be a child and praise God. It's a good thing. But I'm saying that that heart is still in each of us too. That even for grown-ups, 
I'm saying that if we don't resist it, there's not much in our culture celebration of Christmas that will turn our attention to anything more than what we gain and what we get. And I'm not just talking about gift giving and gift receiving. I'm also talking about the celebration of romance in the holiday season. The nostalgia, the, the assumption that this time of year, now especially, we're, we're especially entitled to all things cozy and comfortable. I dare you, I challenge you, all of us, to notice the self-centeredness get, that gets ignited this time of year. To try in the next couple of weeks not just to be absorbed in yourself, thinking about yourself, how people are responding to you, the gifts that come in, the gifts that you give, the ways in which we can infect just about everything with a lens of me. It's proof positive of our sinfulness. It's the very reason for which Christ died and needed to come and rescue us. It's true of all of us. The only question is, can we admit it? That that is in fact who we are, sinners indeed. Can we go to that place where we embrace ourselves as people in need of a Savior? See, because the greatest party foul, whether if it's an office party or a personal party, a gathering of friends, the greatest party foul is to take a gift that doesn't belong to you. Especially if you open it and you find out that it wasn't yours. Bad news. But see, there's a gift that God actually does offer to every single one of us. And it comes with a gift tag. And on it, it says, from God with love. And then it says, to sinners. And inside of it is the greatest promise of love and freedom and joy and even life itself. It's what he wants to give to you, but you can't open it up. It can't be yours unless you name yourself along with that gift tag as a sinner. Until you say, yes, that is me. Until you call and count yourself among those for whom Jesus died, for whom Jesus was named Jesus, who saves his people from his sins. Because he came one Christmas morn, that first morn, and he was born. But he was born to die, to take upon himself all of our failures and sins and infirmities for all of us who would embrace him. And this is a gift from God. It's why we call it grace. But it's a gift for sinners. Sinners, dear friends, is that you? Sinners loved by God, saved by grace. So who's Advent for? Tonight and always, that first advent, grace came to someone who was confused, even humiliated. Someone who from, came from a, a far from perfect family. Someone who was a, a sinner in need of a savior, even when that savior was his very own baby boy. And if that's true, then maybe that means that advent this year and every year just might be for me. And Advent grace might also be for you. Let's pray. So we come to you, dear God, trusting in your promises, in your character, believing that you love the weak, you love the lowly, 
you draw near to the confused, those bearing much brokenness in our own lives and in our families and relationships, sinners like us.